Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Live long and prosper. Today, our special guest is... That was so cheesy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Our special guest Adam Nimoy here. is Adam Nimoy. Welcome to the show. And this is probably about the 500 millionth time you've heard it, and probably the 500 millionth and first time we've said, we are so sorry about your dad. All right. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a comfort to hear it, uh, no matter how many times. Yeah. We all have a dad. <laughs> We don't all have a dad who's done what yours has done, and you're going to make a film about it. Yes, I am making a film about it. Tell us about the film. Well, uh, I'm making a, a documentary film entitled For the Love of Spock. It was a project that I had uh, conceived with my dad last year. Uh, it was kind of my idea. I've been reading a lot about um, Star Trek literature uh, thumbing through some of the uh, the journals and histories of Star Trek, and I just felt that there wasn't really that much about um, Spock and the, the development of the character, the creation of the character. I just thought that we could explore that much more. And uh, it was a subject that really interested me, and we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of the original series in 2016. That's right. Uh, yep. Dad and I had just completed a documentary together on his life in Boston uh, growing up as a young boy, uh, the son of uh, Russian immigrant parents. Mm-hmm. And I thought we would do another project together, and, and it seemed like the time was right to make a Spock project. Uh, and my dad was very enthusiastic about the idea, and we be- immediately began talking about it, shaping it, uh, putting together um, a sort of synopsis about what we wanted to cover and an outline of the subjects we wanted to cover. Uh, since his passing in February due to end-stage COPD, there's been so much uh, response from the fans, such an outpouring of emotion um, of the, for the loss of Dad, and uh, uh, that uh, it seemed to me it makes sense to expand the film to include not only the life and legacy of Mr. Spock, but that of Leonard Nimoy as well. And he gave us a lot. He gave us a lot. Yeah, he was. Uh, uh, it was interesting that a number of people who contacted us through social media or uh, my own personal email and uh, Facebook pages and Instagram pages were were telling us that uh, that you know they were they were as sad to lose Leonard Nimoy as uh, Mr. Spock. 
um, that his life as an artist and all the things he had accomplished through the course of his life uh, made also a big impact on people all over the world. So it seemed to me that I needed to expand the scope of this film to encompass both both figures, basically. And he did so much that we we do or do not know about. In the Los Angeles area, we're aware that uh, the... Um the, the recent refurbishing of the uh, Griffith Observatory, which everyone knows by sight, um, was largely funded by uh, him and his wife, Susan, that, uh, yes, we're particularly fond of the, the Leonard Nimoy Event Horizon Theater. <laughs> right, of course, for obvious reasons. <laughs> but I, we figure that, you know, outer space, or at least the people who care about outer space, made him a rich man, so he gave back to outer space in his own way. And well, they've given back. My, my dad and Susan are both very, very have a had and have a philanthropic bent. Um, they're definitely interested in social and political causes, and they're very active in the community. Uh, I know Susan's going to carry that on, uh, that legacy uh, on. There's a, a foundation that she works with to to look for these kind of causes that that are worth uh, supporting. So that was a big part of who my dad was. In addition to all the other artistic endeavors that he pursued and um all these things together made a big impression on people and inspired people that's probably could inspire people just sitting at home you know every time i hear someone in their 60s say oh i'm too old for the internet i just i would point at letter nemo and say no you're not this guy's on every day (laughs) talking to people i don't want to hear people he was on twitter account he was very engaged and he got you know put the fear of uh, um, uh, lung illness into a lot of young people, and I think he will have saved a lot more lives before before you know we know the full impact of his contribution there. Don't smoke. Right. Okay. Breathing, yeah, breathing in L.A. is enough lung damage for me. Thanks. <laughs> he inspired so many more people than just. Uh, just the the people who knew him directly. I mean, uh, as Mr. Spock, the character he created, he uh, he opened a window into uh, self awareness that and and that gave teenagers all over the world a way to figure out who they were and and get a hold of the the emotions that they were feeling and understand them and realize that. Uh, uh, the emotions were not their master, that they were the master of their emotions. And this has helped so many, so many. It what, seems what did like, kids do, have for a role model before that? Like uh, military figures, perhaps? I can't think of any, you know. Well, yeah, a lot of kids reached out to my dad. I mean, a lot of people said that, um, you know, he, he saved their life. He, he helped them get through hard times. It's kind of interesting. That was uh, news to me about that whole, you know, aspect of young people who were struggling with emotions and, and the highs and lows that they were experiencing in their lives. And Spock was kind of very even keeled, even though he, too, had to struggle with, uh, with emotional challenges. So uh, that was just like one aspect of this whole spectrum of people who were, uh, kind of own Spock, you know, and, and that Spock appeal to. So that kind of opened up my eyes. I wasn't really aware of that until we started hearing from young people um, or people who have known him and loved Spock all of their lives since they were young 
mm-hmm. and teenagers and dealing with these kind of emotional issues. Well, it's your dad and the script writers. <laughs> your dad didn't come up with that alone, but boy, did he deliver it in a way that just, re- you know, resonated. Right, yeah. I mean, a lot of what Dad brought to Spock was not necessarily on the page, and, and that, that you know, was true with a lot of situations where actors are reading scripts where there's um, there's a lot of blank space for him to fill. And, and I think, you know, in, in the hands of another actor, um, maybe less capable, I'm not, you know, it's, it's a tricky role to play because he's supposed to be doing so much of nothing or apparently so much of nothing. But what's really going on with Spock is that there's a lot of dynamic uh, and conf- internal conflict within himself, dealing with his emotions and, and trying to contain himself. So, um, you know, that can come off as very boring of somebody doing nothing, but he's a, had a very active dynamic in her life. And, and that is something that, um, that Dad, I think, really brought to the table. So how he sure did it's just that's that's where uh, television really could shine I think in a in a in the 1960s when it needed to because your close-ups and the your the lighting and the views of what was going in, on inside of a person who is just standing there he he was one of the masters of this this art yeah you know I was just watching an episode called the Doomsday Machine with oh my God. Window. It's a fabulous episode because William Wyndon has taken over the captain's chair and is driving the Enterprise on a suicide mission, and Spock can't stop him because of rules and regulations based on Starfleet. So uh, there are a number of interesting cuts to Spock close up, and you can see the turmoil that's going on within him. Uh, I mean, he could take this guy out with a Spock pinch and get him off the bridge and get the you know the ship back into safety, but he can't do it because he's restrained by by. Uh, by the Starfleet protocol, and you see the internal turmoil that he's dealing with inside of him. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting episode to, to get that kind of glimpse inside of Spock. Well, in the contrast between William Wyndham chewing on the, on the scenery and Spock's, you know, very stillness. You know, that was yeah, so brilliant. Yeah, good contrast so between them. How old were you when you first realized that your dad was famous? Well, I was 10. The uh, series aired uh, September 8th, 1966, a month after my 10th birthday. Happy birthday. And, uh, and it, was, it was probably the, it was the end of September when The Naked Time aired, and that was a big episode for Spock. And that's when things started uh, blowing wide open, that people were responding to the show and to Spock in particular. So, <laughs> And from then on, and then there was this whole incident with 16 Magazine. They did an article on on dad and the family and they accidentally published our home address as the oh. mailing address for fan mail oh boy yeah so we you know we we found out very early on how, how <laughs> successful dad had been in full so did the, the mail- mailman stop coming the mailman stopped coming and they sent a mail truck every day instead with sacks of mail sacks oh my god did you guys yeah. take a vacation well, for a few days well they, you know, just, they did, did you have to move I mean, no, no, we had to answer the mail. Oh my God. <laughs> we did eventually move two years later oh. in, in uh, October of 68. We moved out of that house, but we answered a hell of a lot of mail. Oh my God. Yeah, stuffing pictures of dad and the first promo picture he had and addressing these things to fans all over the place. It was insane, but uh, it was also very exciting, you know, to have oh, that yeah. kind of response. And and I was excited about the show when I was watching them film it in the in the summer of 66 before it even aired. Well, you were the uh, target audience, weren't you? Wow. I was a target audience, and I was there, and I was ready to go, and I was watching them make it, you know, firsthand. And 
I loved it from the very beginning. So I was, it was very exciting. I, I couldn't wait for it to come out. I kept looking in TV Guide for the first ads for it. I, I, I remember, you know, vividly going to the, the market. Uh, it was called the Food Giant Market on Olympic Boulevard and buying that first TV guide and, and looking uh-huh. through it, finally, finally finding an ad with Star Trek with a picture of Spock in it. That, wow. <laughs> I can't imagine what that must have been like. I mean, it's... it's, it's you don't uh, have to imagine. He can well, just tell you. Of course. <laughs> Well, I was I was riding my bike home. I was never so excited. It was like I was walking on cloud nine. I was so excited about the show. Did anybody show up at the house? Yeah, the on magazine? Halloween uh, of that ah! year, we had a God. we had yeah a parade of Spock costumes. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 delightful. I remember seeing in the Stephen Whitfield book the picture of you and your father on the set. And gave him little baby pointed ears. Mm-hmm. It's so cute. <laughs> so um, there was a time. Yeah, that was a you know that that was a day I wanted to you know share with Eugene that experience because it was such an interesting day when I was on the set. I had visited the set many times, but one of the things that um, they were uh, that uh, um, Dad used to do on the set was he stayed in character. Um, he was very focused, and it took a lot of concentration for him to play Spock. So even when the director said cut, he would stay in character as Spock. And Bill Shatner would be, you know, cracking jokes and trying to get Dad to laugh, and he wouldn't do it. So uh, as a stunt, they when Dad was on uh, the bridge set, he was in the captain's chair because Kirk was on the planet. Uh, they took me into the makeup room and sat me down with Fred Phillips, who was the makeup artist mm-hmm. for Spock. Fred cut my hair. He shaved my eyebrows and gave me some Vulcan eyebrows. And he put on a pair of dad's ears onto my ears. And, uh, and then they put, stuck me in the turbo lift and they rolled camera. And while Spock was talking to Kirk on the planet, the turbo lift opens. I come out, walk down to dad, kiss him on the cheek and say, hi, daddy. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that from the blooper reel. Yeah, it's in a, yeah, it's in a blooper reel somewhere. So, uh, and they get, that got him to smile, but that was, you know, that was a very (laughs) exciting moment for me. I mean, I can still remember vividly standing in that turbo lift waiting for them to open the doors. And, uh, it was just a great experience and a lot of fun and something I'll always remember. And those doors were manually operated. And I'm, and by manual, I mean guys behind the wall with, uh, with their hand on a rope waiting for their cue. Correct. Absolutely correct. <laughs> And sometimes, uh, sometimes they would miss that cue. Well, they didn't this time. <laughs> that would really be no. embarrassing. Yeah, they did miss the cue on occasion, and people would bang into the, into the doors. <laughs> um, so uh, there was a time in your father's life when he was trying to step away from Spock. Where he was trying to establish his identity as a person uh, separate from Spock. Uh, marked by the publication of that book, I Am Not Spock. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that era in his life? Yeah, I mean, um, I know a lot about that era. That era is where he was trying to challenge himself artistically as an actor. Uh, he had played the role of Spock. He was very proud of the work he had done, and he was trying to branch out and do some new things that challenged him. This is really why he went on to Mission Impossible. It gave him the opportunity to kind of stretch himself until he realized that Mission Possible was really a series of costume changes and, and makeup changes because he was the master of disguise, Paris, the master of disguise. And there was no real inner life to those characters. There was nothing to play. It was just a lot of action. So uh, the I Am Not Spock book was, he always told me that, you know, what, if, when we make this film, if there's any controversy we want to focus on about his role as Mr. Spock, it should be 
the book he wrote and, and completely mistitled I Am Not Spock. It was basically a mistake because uh, the fans who really catapulted him to where he was in his career uh, kind of took umbrage to it, and rightfully so, because it looked like he was trying to downplay the character or distance himself from the character, which was really not his intention. What he was trying to basically say is, I'm an artist and I want to take on more challenging work. So in the 70s, he did it. He did a number of stage uh, plays, a lot of theater. Mm -hmm. um, He did Sherlock Holmes, which I wish I'd seen. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes was, I think, one of the lesser roles for him. I mean, there was there were some things that were more uh, successful than others, and and the but the, some of the shows that were worth seeing that were really uh, interesting to me was um, Fiddler on the Roof. We were in the uh, on the East Coast doing summer stock with that. He was oh, fabulous. Tevya, right? Tevya, he of was course. fabulous. Oh, really well, and this is his ancestry, isn't it? It is, exactly. I mean, our, our, our great greats could have been Tevya's daughters, let's face it. That's right. Yeah. Dad comes from Russian immigrant parents who mm-hmm. lived in a shtetl uh, in what is now the Ukraine. Now Ukraine, I should say, not the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was a show that was really fabulous to watch him in. He was also in an interesting production in uh, uh, San Diego called A Man in the Glass Booth. Really, really excellent work in there. And uh, and then in '77 he was on Broadway doing uh, Equus, and he oh, was my. absolutely phenomenal in that role. Really, really phenomenal. I always I asked him. It's like he was there. I think for it was about a four or five month run, and I asked him. I was so overwhelmed by how powerful it was, and he every and I went there every weekend because I was working as an intern in D.C. and flying in every other weekend to see him, and he was always outstanding. and I and I asked him one night, "How do you do this night after night and keep it so fresh and alive?" And he said the material was so good, it was so challenging that he was always finding new things to play within the words that he had to speak, and the other actors were so invested in the in the play that they might come to him in different ways. And he always had to stay very alert as to what they were doing and what they were playing. So it was a really interesting experience for him and for me. And then later it was I Am Spock. He, he wrote a... Later on, he, he, he wanted to own up and correct the mistake by writing an autobiography about I Am Spock. But the fact is that he went back happily to do the feature films of Spock. But again, mm-hmm. he was challenging himself as an artist by... Uh, uh, being, by uh, uh, creating a situation where he can get behind the camera and direct two of those movies. And a darn fine job he did. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he did a really good job. Star Trek Four is just an outstanding film. That's one of the, the favorites amongst the people who have such favorites. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Well, all the odd-numbered films. You know? <laughs> oh, don't. The, the, the do, please do not we... get started with that. I was almost in the first one. Thank you very much, my... My uh, the sci-fi club at uh, UCLA got invited, but I was too short for the costume. Uh, <laughs> All my that? classmates were in there. Yeah, no, well, they said you had to be over five foot three, yada yada yada, and I missed uh, that by a bit. Um, I should have lied. By about an inch. I should have just. Yeah, I should have just worn heels and lied. Yeah, that would have done it because they did wear heels in the. You know, well, it was much more common then. Damn, damn my honesty. That would have put me within how many degrees of <laughs> Kevin Bacon to be in the right movie? Never mind. That's a whole other show, I think. So what about your own career? Where did you go? You said you were intern. You were an intern. In D.C. In D.C. What and we know you've done some TV directing and right. parts. Yeah. 
Well, I always wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be an attorney. I was a poli-sci major in college, and Dad, mm-hmm. in 1976, we took a great trip uh, to Washington. He knew a number of people there, uh, Tip O'Neill, Gary Hart, who's then U.S. Senator from the state of Colorado, and George McGovern. And uh, we, uh, in the following year, I went to work as an intern for Tip O'Neill, and the year after that for Gary Hart. Uh, I went to law school. I practiced law for seven years. I realized it, it was the the law was not my calling and what I really wanted to do with my life. And then I made a career switch, and Dad helped me a lot to get me educated and up to speed of what directing was all about. I was actually uh, in an acting class with Jeff Corey, who was my dad's acting instructor early on when he came to L.A., uh, and that class really opened up my eyes as to what it was all about. And I took a number of courses at uh, night classes to get up to speed. And I followed Nick Meyer around on Star Trek VI to learn a lot about what it means to make a motion picture. And then I started directing on The Next Generation. And I directed uh, 10 seasons of television uh, in one-hour drama network primetime. That's quite a transition. Uh, your experience as a lawyer could not have hurt you. <laughs> I'm not sure dealing how much with they, Hollywood. Um, yeah, I was about to say. Uh, no, if you deal with Hollywood, you have to be like a second grade teacher. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's well, that's a whole other show. Well, she deals with publicists all day. So that would be yeah, the well, first grade teacher. Sense. I would understand that. No, Gene, I'm telling you, they, I'm so happy I have that legal education, and I was an entertainment attorney, so I know how to read a contract. And, uh, oh, and I know, but, you know, and it's just been it's been very helpful. I've been I've been really lucky that I, I have that background, but that I was able to leave it to pursue more creative uh, type of uh, goals. We'd have expected you to see, you know, to see you on, you know, Perry Basin or something in a courtroom mm-hmm. drama. Oh, I, I did. I did direct a couple of episodes of The Practice mm-hmm. for David Kelly. So that made sense. There was a courtroom scene then. You're going to laugh at me because I'm such a geek and I know this. Um, the The new Outer Limits and your father was in it. And there was a courtroom scene proving the the human status of a of a robot. Right. Yes, I was there. <laughs> like, I now I that. have to hunt that down again and and watch it again with the yeah. new eyes and the new. Yeah, it was awareness. a good episode. We had a, we had a, real, a lot of fun making that show. Yeah, I worked really hard on that one. You must have had a great deal of of science fiction in your uh, uh, in your filmography as well, a result of your. Well, I suppose it was a result of the connections, but I could see yeah. if he just never even wanted to look at it again, too. I mean, it could go either way. Yeah. What way did it go? Did you well, did you, take, well, did you embrace it or did you yeah. not? No, I did actually. I didn't have that much opportunity to do it. I mean, I did the uh, the uh, Next Generation mm-hmm. and Babylon Five are probably the only significant sci-fi show and the Outer Limits, but. Uh, uh, they were all very, very good. In, in, I mean, it's of interest to me, and especially mm-hmm. the human element of it. Um, and that was what we were trying to go for in The Outer Limits. I mean, uh, it is a sci-fi story with uh, what, with what I think is – it's interesting, Gene, because when I made that and, and, and uh, th- when I made that film, I was approached by – finally by an agent in Hollywood who uh, wanted to represent me. And somebody told me, well, if an agent comes to you and they've seen your work like The Outer Limits, you've got to ask them what they liked about the work. Yeah. That's your test to see if the agent is worth representing you. So I asked this guy, and he said, I like the Outer Limits episode because it was it was sensitive without being too sentimental, that it still had edge to it, but it had heart to it. And that's those are my favorite type of sci-fi shows, and that's why I love Star Trek, because mm-hmm. it's so much about humanity and, uh, and relationships really and, and the struggle about of the people. And not, know, to, not the tech. Yeah. You know, it's, no it's, matter what the people look like. 
I mean, the the the, uh, the toys and the gadgets and the costumes uh, are all very important to the success of a science fiction show because uh, this is what the fans. This is how the fans. This is how they sucker you in to watch. Well, I was going. <laughs> I was going okay. to say well, they, put, they that, put on girls with skimpy dresses. That's how they sucker you in to watch. At well, least the boys. That works. But that that only worked to a certain degree with Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, uh, with all the, due respect to our friend Juliet's uh, parents, man, that was wooden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, the uh, what I was going to say was that the uh, the the set, the iconic sets, and the props, and the costumes, and the technology, and the fact that all of that was kept straight uh, helps the fans immerse themselves in the world of whatever the show is. But it's about the people. Yeah, it is about the people. It's but about and it, Spock is kind of was kind of the connecting mm-hmm. glue of of all of it, and he was he was the least quote unquote people of a lot of them. He was the alien element, well, but he still had a very yeah, Susan, human so relationship that you with say his people. That because most people have commented that although Spock was the only alien on the bridge of the Enterprise, he was more human than many other people or many other characters in the show. Hmm. That yeah. there was a humanity to That's why we have this line in Star Trek Three, you know, where Kirk says, of all the souls I've, I've come across in the galaxy, he was, was the most human. So uh, it's su- such an interesting kind of dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. Vic, Vic Mignogna, who plays Captain Kirk in Star Trek Continues, commented in a documentary that he thought that that was one of the most telling lines uh, about the Spock character. That uh, well, he's that, a that scholar, Kirk, that and Kirk he's, said that he gets it. Yeah, Vic gets it. Yeah, I was uh, I was just commenting that uh, uh, you know the 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 quality with which the settings are articulated make it easier for fans to recreate elements of that so that they can it brings them into the world of whatever it is they're watching uh and it's the characterizations and the stories that draw them in in the first but, place so well, it's uh, certainly it's, that keeps you need, them but there. you need both you need yeah. both for a good science fiction show and and the human yeah, story does not balance. involve humans his, okay. Yeah, Star Trek had that balance. Okay, Devil in the Dark. You know, the Spock's scene with something that looks like a rock. And mm-hmm. he's, yeah, he's, doing, all, he's doing all the heavy lift. Your father's doing all the heavy lifting of the characterization there because we can't hear her half of the conversation. Correct. And it was still as full and rich as any scene between any other characters. And if anybody else had done it, it would have been somebody... It would have been silly. ...filling up a pizza... Pizza costume. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was a really good episode. Uh, yeah, I think Dad did a good job on that. It was a very, very interesting and challenging episode for him. It's one of my favorites. There are so many episodes where um, he really carried it. I mean, it, even in the third season episode, The Spectre of the Gun, which is not one of the... That's one of the eye rollers. Yeah, it's one of the eye rollers. I can't believe they did that. You know, um, but it's it's all yeah. uh, uh, when they started to run out of money and they started to do limbo sets and and uh, uh, pieces that were just really fantasy settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it still really depended on. Um, then it depended even more on the actors. Yeah, it depended even more on the actors to carry it, and and uh, uh, your father. Uh, was the linchpin in that story, and it couldn't have been yeah. done without without his skills. 
Right. How many how many yeah. kids in that generation thought that the James gang were the good guys? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of them. Well, because they were a rock band. I mean, they have to be the good guys. Yeah, that's it. The haircuts. <laughs> yeah. Those crazy haircuts. Mm-hmm. So, um, your father's first foray i mean how did he get into acting in the first place i mean the the i i'm remembering um, rocket men that was a nice jewish boy rocket patrol become a space guy mm-hmm. yeah i know he was in zombies of the stratosphere zombies of the um, stratosphere that was it yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, an episode uh, of- know, it started when he was living in boston there was in the west end uh there was a um there was an institution called the elizabeth peabody uh, playhouse, which was a theater, um, the the uh, the whole building was sort of a, a, a sort of an ed- education for immigrants to try to assimilate into society in Boston. It was and they gave them courses on all kinds of different things about homemaking and language, and and they had a theater there, and they were putting up a play. Uh, it was being directed by a fairly uh, well known uh, television feature director by the name of Boris Segal. And it was a Clifford Odette's play. It was a very Depression-era type of play called Awake and Sing. And Dad was cast in it as a teenage son or the young son. Uh, and uh, it really uh, inspired him. It, he really connected to the character. Um, and from there, he, he was in a summer program uh, at uh, Boston College, which also changed his life completely. And from that and a number of other experiences in the theater – in Boston, small theater, he had decided that that's what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. So he actually worked very hard at selling vacuum cleaners after high school um, to generate the money he needed to get on a train and get out to California. And he did it on his own. At 19, he, he went uh, took a three-day trip across country and uh, came out to Pasadena, found out that the classes there were not quite what he imagined, uh, not up to snuff, really. And then he finally found Jeff Corey and started taking private acting classes uh, and slowly but surely began um, getting bit parts in TV roles. Um, and then finally, one thing led to another. After about a couple of dozen of these roles, uh, he wound up on a show called The Lieutenant, which was being produced by Gene Roddenberry. And that's mm-hmm. where they first met. Wow. But he always wanted to be an actor, and his, his uh-huh. parents were not happy with that decision. They wanted doctors and lawyers being Russian immigrants. That's what they had in mind for their kids. And his older brother went to MIT and became a chemical engineer for Johnson & Johnson, which mm-hmm. is the only job he held for 30, 35 years, I think. So, uh, uh, you know, becoming an actor was not in the grand plan for Russian immigrant <laughs> parents. No, he held, the, he held a job for over 30 years, too, didn't he? <laughs> Your dad, I mean. Yeah, he, 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 he counted yeah. all together. in a very real sense. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, he well, he yeah, the job of Spock has taken him over fifty years. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. What was so it? What, like? are you, what are your plans for next year? So you know, the anniversary's coming up. I'm sure there'll be a big presentation at the World Science Fiction Convention again, like there was fifty years ago. And uh, what else? What else is in your plan? You, you'll have a, a documentary by then once everyone has kicked into Kickstarter, she said, hinting. Uh, the Kickstarter currently has 300, at this reading, the Kickstarter has $365,000. I'm glad you said already. thousand, because I'm going, I could double that. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd love for you to double Out of a goal of 600000 you're more than halfway there, and you still have oh, yay. A, little, a little bit under two weeks to go. 
and uh, I have no doubt that you're <laughs> you're you're uh, that uh, you're going to blow by that uh, that required number. So, yeah. well, the fact is, we're, we've been working on this film now since November. I've been working on it since I started uh-huh. with my dad. We had a production day, two production days this week, uh, interviewing people uh, for the movie, uh, including Bill Shatner and George Takei and Walter Koenig. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the process of making this movie uh, and and taking a leap of faith that we're going to make our funding amount. But we need help. I got to be honest with you guys. We really need the fans to to. Help us complete this project by by pledging on the Kickstarter uh, page, and and helping us complete a successful campaign. We do have uh, a less than two weeks to go, uh, and we have some ground to make up. But we're sure we're going to make that amount. But but I, I must emphasize to you guys as much as you can uh, to to uh, to get the word out to the Trek community uh, that this campaign is underway, and it's to help me complete a film about uh, you know a iconic character, Mr. Spock, and and an incredible artist, my father, Leonard Nimoy, mm-hmm. both of whom are, I think, very deserving of a film tribute of this magnitude. It's not just a tribute. I mean, this is really history. This is this is a pivotal part of who we are as... as uh, he changed our lives. Yeah, yes. And he deserves his side of the story to be told. And uh, there, there's so much up, upon which uh, that... Let me rephrase that. Start over. Upon Some, which... Uh, there is so much uses Star Trek as a foundation. Uh, without Star Trek, we would not have probably a good chunk of our popular culture today. A good chunk our of our technology. Phone. Yes, let's say our tablets. Our yeah, our iPads phones. and our smartphones and our... <laughs> <laughs> they're they're, they're going to work out that Starship thing. Yeah, the... And I constantly mispronounce it. I, it's Al, Albuquerque. Yeah, drive pretty close. The uh, the Mexican physicist who worked out the mathematics for producing a working warp bubble. And the funny thing about that is his model comes out looking uncommonly like uh, Spock's ship in the two thousand nine Star Trek. So go figure that. And I don't think they they looked it up. Where are you going to be next appearing? There's just a number of press interviews that I'm doing right now. I'm going to be on Access Hollywood next week. I've been on some of the uh, local television stations promoting it. Um, More interviews. Uh, Mm -hmm. AMA, I'm going to be on Ask Me Anything tomorrow. Uh, What time am I on tomorrow, AMA? (laughs) At 1030. uh, That would be on Reddit. AMA is, is a Reddit exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to uh-huh. be uh, answering there. And so we're continuing on to try to get the word out okay. that we need the support of the Bach and Leonard fans to help me complete this project. Hey, it's up to you guys. We want the Event Horizon to make the difference. Please give. This oh, is going to be awesome. Adam Nimoy, thank you so much for joining thank us you guys. on the Event Horizon. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Gene and Susan. Thank you so much. You have been listening to episode 104 of The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio for June 20th, 2015. Our guest this evening has been director and filmmaker Adam Nimoy, the son of the late Leonard Nimoy. We have been discussing For the Love of Spock, the documentary begun by Leonard and Adam Nimoy, and being produced by Adam. Please visit the Kickstarter page for this historic documentary project. Search for Love of Spock and you'll find it. Please help by becoming a backer of this important project. 
This episode will air again on Sunday, June 21st at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. Consult the program schedule on the KryptonRadio.com website for showtimes in your area. If you would like to appear on the Event Horizon, or you know or work for someone who does, please write to our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The Navigator was played by Christine Cherry. The Science Officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schermeister. The Engineer was Christian B. McGuire, and the Captain was voiced by science fiction author Larry Nevin. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, is copyright 2015 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>